Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 16. And before I read it, let me just remind you, I'm sure you've probably forgotten by now, but um, it's been a month and uh, you, uh, you know, we can't remember things for a month, but um, I uh, introduced this uh, series on the Psalms, uh, not all of them, not all 150 of them, but uh, I said 10% of them or so till 12, 15, something like that. And uh, it's been a month since we uh, were looking at the Psalms and so we're back um, after a month long break for various reasons, <clears throat> and uh, we're looking again at another of the Psalms. So you follow in your copy as I read that which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, without contradiction, without myth. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You know, the temptation um, in dealing with a psalm like this is to say too much. There is so much from which to draw in this psalm. I, I have chosen to include it in our little study of the psalms because, because I love it. <laughs> there are things that are said in it that are just captivating things that you um that you lift off out of the psalm and you put it on a plaque and you sell it in a christian bookstore like um in your presence is fullness of joy there's four or five or six statements like that that are just that that, that if it weren't inspired biblical literature it would be marvelous prose oh it's marvelous prose but it's also inspired biblical literature it's, it's captivating some of the statements that are made. The Lord is my chosen portion, my lot. You know, it's just some great statements made in there. But there's another reason that I wanted to draw your attention to this song. Because it does something. Something happens in this psalm. It's not the only time it happens in the psalms. But something happens in this psalm that, that I want to suggest to you is a must see. That is, if you can get this, it's going to help you understand um, the psalm. It's going to help you understand much of the Old Testament and some of even the New Testament. If you can get this, if, you, if you'll if you see what it is that takes place in this psalm, and I'll try to show it to you. 
So I've reduced my comments down to two. I, I want to I do two things with this psalm this morning. First of all, I want to concentrate on one word. <laughs> I didn't count the number of words, but we're just going to look at one of them. Um, because I'm convinced that it's pretty much a summary of the entire psalm. And out of it flows all of that glorious language, that lofty language used by the psalmist. I want you to fix your attention on one word with me, and that's, that's part of, that's half of what we'll do. The other thing is that I want to, I want to show you what takes place in this psalm. Something that happens. And that thing that happens, um, will help you. Will help you in understanding your own Bibles when you're, when you're studying them. So we'll, we'll do those two things this morning and we'll be done. Okay? Guys, um, the Psalms are a challenge to understand in and of themselves. Uh, you know, it's not the easiest stuff to read. Um, it's, it's, it, there's, there's challenge to, to grasping what is being said. Yes. And I think uh, at least a bit of that challenge or a part of the obstacle that, that we have in understanding the Psalms is indeed the very thing to which I pointed. And that is the language. I don't talk like this. You don't talk like this. We don't talk like this. Um, when's the last time you said something like, in his presence is fullness of joy? I mean, the, the problem, guys, is that these fellows who wrote this, the, the Psalms, they're in a different spiritual league from us. And it's hard to relate to somebody who, um, who talks like this. We don't talk like this. We don't, we don't have this kind of, this fresh and full and, and profound sense of the, of the divine and, and our commitments to him. It's hard to relate to that. For example, when you read that statement in, um, oh, it's in verse two, I have no good apart from you. What goes off inside of you? I mean, what, what is the kind of visceral reaction when, when I, when, when, when this text and I repeat it saying, I have no good apart from you. What is that? How do you respond to that on the inside? What's your response to that? Nothing, duh. Oh, come on. There's got to be some kind of response to a statement like that. Um, maybe, well, I don't like it. It makes me very uncomfortable to have somebody talk like that around me. Because I don't talk like that. Very frankly, I resent it. I resent it because, um, you know, uh, I know it's supposed to be true about me, but it's not true about me. And so, um, you know, I just kind of skip right over that kind of stuff. Because, you know, I, I don't talk like that, and I don't have that kind of commitment, and, and, and it makes me nervous. And very frankly, um, I think he's a phony. I don't think anybody could say something like that. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Or, I have no good thing apart from you. Where does commitment like that come from? Because <laughs> we haven't got it, have we? <laughs> Which brings me to the word that I want you to see. Because I, I'm convinced that if we could understand just one of the words in here and, 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 and all of its beauty, uh, we might understand more of 
of the psalmist, and we might understand more of what we're lacking. It's the word in verse 1. It's the word refuge. I love that word. (laughs) Refuge. It's a big word in the Old Testament, guys. It's used a lot. Um, it's, I, I, I was, it's just used a lot. It's, it's used a lot in the book of Psalms, but it's not the only place that it's used. I want to show you that. But what I want to do is try to help we, uh, give us a sense of the import of the word and the profundity behind it. So think with me just about this one word, refuge, for a few minutes. First of all, guys, um, you know that, um, well, actually, maybe you don't know. But before Israel ever crossed over the Jordan and entered the promised land, God gave instructions to, um, to uh, Moses saying that they were to construct these things called cities of refuge. You remember that? Um, there were supposed to be cities that dotted the, the countryside in Israel that were called cities of refuge. Now, they're first mentioned in the book of Numbers. But once Israel crosses the, uh, the, the, the Jordan and is in the promised land, Joshua reminds them. And I want to read you that. Just listen. This is the description of the cities of refuge. This is in Joshua 20. Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. That the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him at the, in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is the high priest. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, his own home, to the town from which he fled. Did you get that? Guys, in the days of David, actually, when David wrote Psalm 16, those cities of refuge existed. There were six of them. There was one in the north, one in the south, one in the central, on both sides of the Jordan. Israel was divided by the Jordan. So you had one in the north, one in the central, one in the south, on both sides of the Jordan. And the roads to those cities of refuge were to be the best roads in all of Israel because no one was supposed to have any kind of problem uh, of access into those cities. And these cities, these cities of refuge, were sanctuaries. They were safe havens. For whom? Well, it told you. Uh, in fact, in the book of Numbers, it, it even gives you this example. Say you're out in the woods one day and you're, you're, you're chopping down a tree with your, with your neighbor. And your axe head flies off of your axe handle, hits him in the head, kills him. Well, then, then you were in trouble. <laughs> you were a manslayer. And so what you were supposed to do is to run to one of these cities of refuge. If you had killed someone unintentionally, uh, accidentally, you are to run into one of these cities and your, your case was heard by the elders of the city and then you were safe. You were inside one of the cities of refuge. And the manslayer, the avenger, I mean, excuse me, the avenger of blood, he couldn't touch you. And once inside that city, I mean, life could go on. 
I, I mean, you could prosper and, and maybe your family would have to move from their hometown over to this new city. But, but life could go on unimpeded, uh, safely, protected. That's what a city of refuge did, ladies and gentlemen. It provided safety for people who knew that they were in trouble. Let me give you one more. Just one more story about a refuge. It comes out of the book of Ruth. Remember that story, the book of Ruth? Oh, sure you do. Ruth is, let's see, um, there was this family, and it was headed up by a guy by the name of Elimelech. And Elimelech was married to Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi had two sons, Malian and Kilian. Because of a famine, they moved out of Israel over into Moab. While over in Moab, the two sons, Malian and Kilian, married Moabite women. But while still there, Elimelech, the daddy, died. And not only that, <laughs> so did Malian and Kilian, the two sons. They both died. So what you've got left is Naomi, the mother-in-law, and two daughters-in-law. One was named... <laughs> I almost said Oprah, but it's not Oprah. It's Orpah. Her name was Orpah. And the other one was named Ruth. And she's the one that spoke that great, whether thou goest, I will follow. Whether, whether, you know. By the way, that wasn't said from a bride to a bridegroom. That was said from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. But that's why I don't use it in my wedding ceremonies. But, but anyway, so um, they hear while they're over in Moab that the famine is gone. So they move back to Israel. And Israel had this thing where um, if all the men died, then the closest relatives were supposed to marry the women. Because if you're a widow in that culture, you're in trouble. You have no safety. You have no provision. You got nothing. And so Ruth moves back with her mother Naomi into Israel, and they start thinking about where is the kinsman redeemer that's going to going to marry this little um, this little Ruth girl. So Naomi sends her out one one morning and says, "We you need to go um, glean." There was laws of gleaning in Israel that provided for the poor, and a law of gleaning was simply that um, uh, if you were poor and the harvesters came through a field, then you could pick up what they what they left. That was called the law of gleaning. So Ruth, one morning, goes out into the fields to glean. She discovers that she's in the field of Boaz, who happens to be the closest relative of Naomi. He is the kinsman redeemer. And when he finds out um, who the woman is, who's gleaning is one of, his, one of his fields, he says this. This is Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. He says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Do you see that? Do you see the commonality in those two stories, ladies and gentlemen? Well, if you haven't, let me show it to you. It's people who knew they were in trouble. People who knew that they had no provision. People, I mean, for instance, if you if you fled to a city of refuge out there, you're a dead man. 
But in here, you're safe. If you're a, a widow and you've got nobody to work for you and provide for you, you are in essence a dead woman. But Ruth and Naomi had come back to hide under the wings of Yahweh and seek refuge in him. Gang, being in a refuge implies that you understand that you're in danger. That your circumstance is not altogether good. And David in Psalm 16 says, The Lord is my refuge. You know, guys, if you're in a refuge, you talk like David talks. And you say something like, because God is my refuge, apart from him, I have no good thing. Do you see the point, ladies and gentlemen? Do you know why we don't talk like that? The, the, the reason that we don't we don't have this kind of worship and praise of this God is because we have never sensed the level of danger. People inside refuges, they talk like this. People aren't who are not inside refugees, refuges, refuges, they don't talk like that. Guys. Do you know what that makes us? All of us Christians? We're refugees. That's what we are. When, when, um, when Susie and I were still living in Florida, we had all three of our girls in Florida. And, and they were, um, they were all born in Ocala. And, and we lived next door to this family that we loved this family. We still love them. They're great friends, and we don't get to see them hardly ever anymore. But their name was the Benzics. And the Benzics had two kids. They had a son and a daughter. But their daughter, Kelly, was born right in between Gracie and Megan. That is, my Gracie was five, Kelly Benzik was four, and Megan Young was three. And so they would play outside all day long and just have the greatest time. It was just a wonderful neighborhood experience. And but of course, you can imagine who got the short end of that stick uh, every time they were playing. I mean, if anybody was being getting, if anybody was being mean to, it was Megan, the little one, the three-year-old. And so I would be outside, you know, raking leaves or cutting grass and just minding my own business. And and here comes Megan, bawling, running across the street or across the yard to find Daddy, and she would take her head. And she would stick her little three-year-old head between my knees and just sob. But she knew there she was safe. You see, guys, if you're inside a refuge, you would you would. You would say something like this. You would say, hey, uh, you see that tent right outside the city gates? Yeah, I see the tent. Uh, what? You know who lives in that tent? No, I don't know who lives in that tent. Who lives in that tent? Well, um, 
the avenger of blood, the one who's after me. He lives in that tent out there. And you know what? If I leave this city, he's just waiting for me to slip up so I can, I walk out this city and he will take my life. But I'm not going out there because in here, I'm safe. I'm provided for. All of my needs are met and life is, life is good. Gang, all of us believers, you know what we are? We're refugees. We're people whose, whose minds have been awakened by the Holy Spirit of God to know, uh-oh, we're in danger. i got to tell you one more story now. We'll move on. But when Susan and I were in Budapest, we had a, a, a very uh, significant involvement with refugees. You, you may not know this, but hung, Hungary uh, has a large refugee population because back then, this was in 2003, because of the Baltic Wars. You remember when uh, Bill Clinton, the president, decided to bomb the Baltics and, and all those? And, and in fact, we met over lunch with a couple who had run from the bombing that was being done by my president or by my country. But anyway, all these, these refugees came flooding out of the Baltics and one of the closest places was um, Hungary. And so they had all these refugee camps. And uh, we went into those refugee camps and they're, you know, they're boarded up. I mean, they're fenced up and you can't get through unless you got a pass and all this business. And one of the guys in the church that I pastored was a minister to these refugees. And, um, and so he would take us out there. And we, I remember one time we led this little study on family. We took two sacks, well, boxes, packages of store-bought cookies. You would have thought we'd have brought gold bullion. Two packages of cookies. And I think we brought a two-liter drink or something. They ran over that stuff like <laughs> it was really something. But anyway, one of the refugees that we came to really know and love, in fact, she still writes me every now and then. Um, I get an email from her about once a year. Her name is Linda. She was from the Ivory Coast. Do you know where the Ivory Coast is? Imagine Africa. It's right over here. <laughs> um, her father had been assassinated. So had her brother in a political coup. And she had run. She ended up in Hungary. Her story is a little bit different than most of them because she was so afraid to go into the refugee camp because she didn't think she'd ever get out of it. And so she hid in the bushes for eight days and her friends would feed her outside the fence, through the fence uh, of the refugee camp. She ended up buying a little business there in Hungary and she, she wrote us and said, when you're next in Budapest, you've got to come to my store. And so sure enough, we went back to Budapest and what did we track down? <laughs> That little store. It was about the size of my that pulpit there, her store. And she sold socks and pantyhose. And, and she couldn't pull pantyhose and socks off of the walls fast enough to give them to us. And we didn't want her pantyhose. We didn't want, I mean, but, but, the, but the commonality in all those stories, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Refugees have run. They have run because they know their soul is in danger. And that's what we are. And when you recognize the beauty of being a refugee, you begin to talk like this.
you begin to say things like, apart from him, I have no good thing. And because if I go out of this refuge, I'm a dead man. Gang, I hope you see my point. It's simply the reason that we find language like this odd is because we've never seen ourselves like David saw himself. He saw himself racing towards a refuge. And for him, Yahweh, Yahweh was his refuge. I've got to move on, guys, before we run out of time. Because I've got to show you something that goes on in this psalm that, that, that you've got to see. You, you've, it's just, it, it, it'll help you in a lot of ways. So kind of stay with me. Guys, if you've still got your Bibles open, I want you to notice in, in verse 8 that a, an imperceptible shift takes place in verse 8 all the way through the end of the verse. Excuse me, into the psalm. Verses 8 through 11 are vastly different from verses 1 through 7. And I'm not sure you saw that, but and I'll explain it in a minute. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David, the writer of this psalm, he looks further out into the future and he sees something. He, he sees someone. He sees someone going into a tomb and yet not not experiencing corruption. You know what that means. He didn't rot. And by that little statement, we get this dim hint of a, of a resurrection. He, he, um, he says that um, and uses this language to describe a future promised Messiah. And you say... Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, that's a little, that's a little, uh, stretching it. <clears throat> I mean, uh, how did you get that out of there? What, what, what gives you the right to say that these four verses are descriptive of the Messiah? Where do I get that authority? From the New Testament. Guys, keep your finger there and find Acts 2 real quick. Acts chapter 2. Now, you know, Jesus crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and he ascends into heaven. And the next redemptive act after his ascension is what's called Pentecost. Everybody know that? The Holy Spirit gets poured out in this marvelous way. And Peter preaches a sermon uh, in which <coughs> we're told in verse 41, Acts 2, that 3,000 souls were saved that day. In the midst of his preaching his sermon, he is telling them that they crucified the Messiah, but that he has resurrected from the dead. And I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, what he uses to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he resurrected. It's right there in verse 25 through 28. You know what that is? That is a quote. From Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Peter is using Psalm 16 to prove to a Jewish audience 
that the Messiah was predicted that he would resurrect. Look with me at verse 29, Acts 2. He's preaching and he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, pardon me, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Do you know what he means by that? He's saying, guys, when David said that over here in verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16, he wasn't describing himself because David is still with us. His tomb's right over there. And guess what's inside? Rot. Keep reading, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet. Who's a prophet? David. I thought David was a king. He was. I thought David was a psalmist. He was. But in this instance, ladies and gentlemen, he is being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Gang, do you see it? What, what Peter did in the fullness of God's spirit right at Pentecost, he tells you how you were supposed to understand Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. It's not referring to David because David did die and rot and stay in the tomb. But what is going on, ladies and gentlemen, is that God the Holy Spirit is using the mouth of David to predict a resurrected Messiah who would go into a tomb but would not suffer corruption. And in that, David is acting in the role, not of a psalmist, but in the role of a prophet. He's predicting. Gang, there is a sense in which the verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16 have nothing to do with David. In fact, they aren't describing him at all. They're describing, they're really words that you should stick into the mouth of Jesus Christ. Because that's who that's about. You know, guys, there is a sense in which every author in the Old Testament was a prophet. And they were all prophesying about the same thing. They were all prophesying about Jesus Christ, the one who would be sent by God to redeem his people. Gang, this book is about Christ and the one who sent him. Every page of it. You can find him on every page of it. He's in there, guys. This is not some kind of rule book for the nice people in East Memphis. This is a book about a redemptive story that has a main character. And that main character is Christ Jesus, who is predicted in Psalm 16 that he would die and he would resurrect. What I'm saying, guys, is that after David has spent seven verses considering God as the supreme reality of his life, God gives him a glimpse into the future. Um, 
And he sees that one of his descendants is going to be the Messiah. And then David writes something that doesn't describe him. It describes his descendant who would occupy the throne of David as the Messiah over his people. And then Peter in Acts 2 says, What happened to the Messiah will happen to anyone who trusts in him. They too will resurrect. Ladies and gentlemen, we Christians, we throw our whole weight onto a promise just like that. That what happened to Jesus is going to happen to me. And if that promise will not bear me up, then I am content to sink. Because in this refuge, if this refuge fails, if in this refuge I'm not safe, then I'm sunk. Guys, a couple of things that I'm done. You know, when I was preparing this sermon, one of the thoughts that rambled through my head is, um, I I wondered how many generations of Jews have sung that psalm. By the way, you know that the book of Psalms is a hymn book. You know that. And I wondered how how many generations of Jews have sung Psalm 16 and never seen that it's a reference to Christ Jesus. Using that psalm in their worship service. And were you to tell them that that's a reference to Christ, they would scoff at that. Using Psalm 16 in all of its beauty, in all of its messianic import, and missing it all. Guys, don't let that happen to you. Don't let it happen that you miss out the primary message of that book about how God sent a Savior to save sinners. And all who run into Him are safe. One more thing. Guys, you feeling a little bit of danger these days? Are you? Wondering about whether my job's going to be there tomorrow. Feeling a little bit of danger, are you? We all are. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of anybody's fiscal sufferings. This is going to be hard for a lot of us, for all of us. And we're all going to bear some of this. But my point is this, guys. Oftentimes, God uses external sufferings to remind you that you're in danger. Not so much an economic one. You're in danger everlastingly. And there's one refuge for your soul. 
Jesus Christ. Our Father, I do pray that this psalm might be a um, a marvelous reminder of the purpose of the whole book is to tell men and women that there is a refuge, that you provided one, and that we need one, and that all who run into it are safe, and they will experience a resurrection just like our big brother Jesus. Father, um, if you brought people here today who have begun to struggle with um, with things that perhaps they've never struggled with before as a result of what they're reading and seeing in the news media, I pray that this might be a time of redemption where you would send hundreds of thousands into the only refuge for their soul that exists. Christ and him crucified. We pray, as always, in his name. Amen.